Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick Rapatomaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 54. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft week went, thank our patrons, card of the week, seven-win run breakdown. Our main topic is rating the all the uncommons to the gold standard of commons, Rectifier. And then we'll possibly do another commentary on a game from the deck we drafted last week. So to begin with, Hats, how was your week? Uh, well, my week was pretty good. I seem to be on a little bit of a hot streak lately, uh, draft-wise. Um, I've Out of my last eight drafts, I think seven of them have gone seven wins, uh, like six in a row or something. And I don't think I've ever had that happen before in my whole time of drafting Eternal. So uh, good variance and maybe figuring out the format to some degree and uh, just maybe uh, just straight up good luck or just being more focused than usual. I'm not sure what the how to account for it, but I've done, I've done quite well, uh, so I can't complain. Um, I'm nevertheless, I, I got very sad yesterday because I made a, a big mistake while on stream while playing. Um, and I sort of was, uh, I think part of what, I don't know if I should even complain about this sort of thing, but because I sometimes stream myself playing, uh, my attention will be split between just interacting with chat, who's mostly made up of good drafters offering me good advice, uh, and playing the game. And somehow I can get so unfocused that I don't notice obvious plays. And I think that's probably something that um, anybody who streams can relate to. Uh, and I realized in that moment when I lost a game because I'd made an obvious play mistake. It wasn't just like I didn't play the odds right. It was because I had guaranteed lethal and I didn't take it. I didn't see that line. Um, I realized at that point that I don't mind when I lose to bad variants like somebody... Uh, like if I if I get power screwed or flooded or anything, but I really hate making mistakes. <laughs> like I hate it so much more than anything else. It's part of why I don't quite understand when people quit a game like this because of uh, because of the random element um, of, uh, of of drawing enough power or not drawing enough power because that never really makes that much of a difference to me. It's just sort of uh, I have as much chance of flooding as my opponents do. But uh, the one thing that I do have control over, uh, the of, of of playing fairly tight, when I let myself down, it bums me out so hard and so fast. Um, so that's something that I'm just going to have to figure out. Uh, I, I realize I just managed to find a way to complain, even though I'm doing extremely well in draft lately. Uh, and that's, uh, I think we're all just going to have to accept that. But um, it's, uh, that's where I'm at. Like, I'm, I feel like I have a fair amount to talk about with the format and like so, some insights, hopefully. Um, but I think it's mostly just I've kind of distilled all of the knowledge of just playing a whole lot of draft over the last month um, into a handful of things that work pretty well. Uh, I don't think there's anything new. I'm just doing, I'm just getting a lot more consistent and sort of understanding where the real power is. And, and that really ties into our main topic this week too, which is like uh, when you're taking good uncommons, like those are usually the ones that 
really put some punch into your deck and are, make it better than just an amalgamation of cards that are in your factions. So we'll be able to talk about that a little bit more later. So I guess that's how my draft week is going. Uh, real good, but I still managed to find something to complain about. How was your draft week? Mine? Uh, well, before I get into that, I guess, yeah. I did want to say that, I th- I mean, I think that's like a just a really interesting point because... You know, as people have probably discerned over the last couple of weeks that I'm sort of the total opposite where bad variance just like really negatively affects me. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like getting I like the power screw and that kind of stuff. It's just like when I feel like consistently and particularly unlucky and that affects me a lot more than when I make a play mistake because the play mistake, I feel like it's a it's a learning moment. It's a thing that I can do better next time. Mm-hmm. While when I just feel like there are multiple games in a row where I just had no control, that's that's when I start getting really mentally negatively affected. And, I think um, that your I think that your feeling about it is actually more common because I see a lot of people getting getting aggravated about at least if you go by reddit and and some of the streamers i've watched uh it seems to be more upsetting when uh your opponent gets lucky or you get unlucky um because there's a helplessness there and i kind of and i get it in theory like there's like you should be able like it, it would feel better if you could do something about the situation that you're in but you can't because the cards aren't letting you yeah. Um, and I guess I get res- more resigned more quickly. I'm just like, well, there was nothing I could do. Um, and it's not better or worse. Uh, it's just like different things upset us. And I could learn to be easier on myself for making mistakes for sure. That's a problem in my entire life, not just in playing card games. And then uh, everyone else can can be maybe a little bit easier on themselves for the things that they can't control. I don't know. Yeah, I think for me... Part of it is just like because there's always that fear that like the bad variance is not actually bad variance and it's just that you're not particularly good at the game. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, and so then you put even more weight into the bad variance. But then yeah, like, at the same time, yeah. you know, the hypergeometric calculator doesn't lie. And when <laughs> you're What's that now. You're, <laughs> <laughs> when you're, oh, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you uh, when you're constantly having, you know, sub five percent things happen to you. The metric calculator is telling you that that you're just legitimately the unluckiest person to play Eternal. It's like absolutely, provably the unluckiest person for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there has to be someone playing an Eternal who's the unluckiest. Yeah, yeah. I hope that person can contact us and tell us <laughs> what is your proof and what is your sample size and how long have you been keeping statistics? Because we're going to take this seriously. I'm trust me, I'm taking this topic very seriously. <laughs> we're not taking this topic lightly. Someone's got to be the unluckiest, and unless we are proven wrong, it's Patrick. <laughs> And then on that note, I actually have not done a draft game this week, uh, partially because last week we had so much fun drafting a deck and then playing the game that we said we would get back on and do the rest of the games, and then we just didn't have time. Um, Instead, we spent one night and we played Clank, 
on Tabletop Simulator. Which is a Direwolf published game, so it's still somewhat on brand here. Yeah, hashtag not sponsored? <laughs> not um, sponsored. <laughs> we just like Direwolf and their design philosophy. Yeah. So so that was a lot of fun, but didn't involve drafting. And then um, I really enjoy playing popper um, formats. And so <laughs> they had this mini event. And so I dusted off my old FPS control and I played a couple a couple leagues with that. It was kind of interesting. Um, I think this event really showed how powerful the commons in this set eight are because um, I had uh, the decks were just a lot more powerful than the last few times that I played Popper in Eternal. And so it was pretty interesting to see, which will kind of lead into my card of the week. Um, but I have a lot of fun in that kind of format because I just like it feels so much more open than say um, a normal constructed format because all the cards are lower power level. So, and so the power, the curve on cards is a lot flatter. So it really feels like you can kind of do whatever and it's going to be like at least close to the power level you need to compete, you know? So it feels like there's a lot more, you, you have a lot more ability to brew and especially because I draft a lot. So I'm more familiar with the commons. So then I get to like, I have a better idea of how things interact and stuff. So I enjoy kind of just like making up decks and trying them out. I haven't, I, I have actually haven't touched the event, but it does sound like something that would be fun to play with. It's free entry, right? You don't have to spend gold on it. Yeah. Unfortunately they decided that people that were locked in their house for three weeks only needed to play an event for two days. So the event is already over. Oh, uh, okay. Well then I guess I won't do it, but yeah, I mean, that's nice of them to do a little something. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I can put a negative spin on anything, I guess. <laughs> Me too. Me um, too. All right. So on to, or as one would say, a thing that we can't put a negative spin on is our patrons. At <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash Farming Eternal, where you can, for as little as a dollar a month, get access to our show notes and recording bloopers, as well as nudge us towards our Patreon goal of um, raffling off a coaching session with Hats on Lamps. And we also like to thank everyone who does contribute to the show and keep this show running. So, as always, thank you, Mercurio Blue, Abinego, Meagles, Madness, Titus and Blossom, Parmalee, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Cassandrith, Jed the Homrid, Raven Dragon, Esrich0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yist Out. And um, especially, you know, in these sort of uncertain times where I know a lot of people are struggling with money and figuring things out, we really do appreciate people still finding a way to continue to support the show. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so on to card of the week. What is your card of the week this week? I've chosen for my card of the week uh, Turn Back Time, uh, which is a three-time spell, um, a spell that costs three and one-time influence. <laughs> it's hard to phrase that. Three Nothing, feels natural. <laughs> Nothing feels natural. Uh, but uh, what it does is uh, it uh, gets one card back from your void and uh, gives it void bound. That's all it does. Uh, it, I think it's a real interesting card. Um, I think we we talked about it early on um, when it was spoiled uh, 
and we weren't sure how good it was. Like, I think I might have been a little bit higher on it than you were, but I, I wasn't sure how often I'd actually be playing it in a deck. Um, mm -hmm. And now I'm at the point where I want exactly one in every time deck that I play. Uh, I think two is usually too many unless you happen to be a very bomb-heavy deck and it would make a big difference. But one gives you so much versatility. Um, you never play it on turn three, but uh, you have your your void is a whole library of options by the time that you need to play turn back time. Sometimes it's great to bring back a really cheap card and play it in the same turn. Sometimes it's great to bring back your most expensive card in your deck so that you can get a ton of value. And there's a handful of cards in this set that generate so much value that being able to use them twice is backbreaking. Like if you, if it's, a, let's take Waystone Gate, for example, the, uh, uh, the three-time <laughs> relic <laughs> that that uh, as you spend uh, as you spend more power gets you three sigils and then summons an eight-eight onto the field and then goes into your void. You can if you get that with turn back time, you get to draw another three sigils and make another eight-eight, and that's a huge investment of power. But if you're at the point in the game where you're generating, where you're just trying to generate more value off of the resources that you already have, and you're at some kind of a stalemate with your opponent, those kind of plays are huge. Um, and then uh, turn back time is also part of the uh, one of the strongest archetypes in this draft format, uh, the relic weapon archetype, where cards like Edge of Prophecy, the uh, the seven power sword that doubles in size every time you summon it, bringing those big like game ending cards back for a second go is exactly what you want to be doing. And turn back time is always the last time you bring back a weapon and summon it again because it does give the give the weapon void bound. Um, but a lot of the time, you only need to bring Edge of Prophecy back once, or Shugo's Hooked Sword once, or anything else that's your game-ending card once, um, and doing it with, uh, so uh, it's fine if you if you just do it the one time. Uh, because this is such a sort of bomb-heavy format with like these game-ending cards at the, that cost six or seven power, um, having that turn back time to to get more value off of the best card in your deck is really excellent. Um, but I think the the real difference between just using turn back time for that and being willing to use it on something like a seek power early in the game just to keep the flow of your deck going um, is is what makes it really great. Like the possibility that you can do that with it. It's mm -hmm. the most versatile card I can imagine. So I, I, it's hard for me to imagine cutting it from a deck unless the deck had a huge amount of redundancy and I just don't care which card I draw because they all kind of do the same thing so i i like it a lot but like a lot of cards in this format i still only want to play a certain number of copies of it and that number is one <laughs> yeah i i i agree um i'm definitely probably higher on the card than i was at the start of the format but i still find the card a little weird and a little hard to evaluate when you pick them up because i agree with you that i don't really want more than one in my deck and it's kind of like you say this a lot on stream with siege provisions where everyone um always wants you to pick siege provisions really early and you're like well i just want one so i'm just going to wait and i feel the same way about turn back time so it's like it's a really good and powerful card but you know it's really hard to figure out when to pick it pick it almost because you do 
only want one copy I found. So then it's almost, you know, it's like, a, like you were saying, a lot of cards in the set where you're just like, well, so is that a really good card? I don't, you know, I don't know. Cause it's like, I don't know. I think more than any other format so far, this feels like a set where you are kind of building a deck that needs to have all the right pieces more than just accumulating good cards. You are trying to accumulate good cards, of course, but there's mm -hmm. all these weird little support cards, um, that like turn back time and blade crafter and i don't know yeah. a bunch of bunch of cards yeah uh, maybe that's the problem is because like that kind of set is really not great for the unluckiest internal player sure yeah you're never drawing the right card at the at the right time if you're the unluckiest player yeah yeah and all of these cards want you to do that and it's a bad yeah. set for that and, i hope and we sure. i hope the next set is is better for the unluckiest player yeah, where it's just like every card's like generically medium. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter what you draw, yeah. and then every card has like a has like an ultimate at at eight power. So even if you flood, you're you're still doing fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know about that last clause. I don't know. No? You don't think that would help? No, because it's going to be like we always talk about with when you put three Draconises in your deck and you just get stuck at six power. I'm going to have four cards with an ultimate eight on them. And I'm <laughs> seven power for 20 turns. I just want to see the, the card set that is incapable of screwing you over for having bad luck. I yeah, just want to know what that looks like. I'm still waiting for that card, too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of a card like that, yeah. What's your um, card of the week? My card of the week is Grave Watch Ancestor. Let's talk which about it. I think is like just a deceptively great card. Uh, we've talked about this card a lot before, um, and the reason I'm kind of bringing this up is because, like I said, I played a lot of this, or I played a few leagues or whatever this popper event, and uh, the the Zine and there was a Zine and deck out there that mostly it seemed like played Grave Watch Ancestor, and then it. 12 ways to bring it back, sometimes 16 ways, <laughs> it felt like. Um, and they would just like grow their Gravewatch Ancestor over and over again. And it was a pretty cool deck. But, I mean, the fact that Gravewatch Ancestor could make it into, a, you know, a pauper constructed deck where you you have eight sets to choose from, and this was kind of like the prime recursion target. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it was kind of, I thought it was kind of interesting, and it's just like, I don't know, it's just like a, a great card, because it's fine at three, and then it grows, and it can grow pretty significantly, I mean, especially in this format, where there's there are a bunch of cards with big butts, and, you know, we, we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit more in our main topic, but, you know, I think it's like an unassuming looking card, but it ends up being a card that I don't mind having a few in my deck. And, you know, if there's nothing else else going in the, on in the pack, is just like a pretty good card to pick up. And I don't know where everyone else is on it, but I don't know. I've just yeah. always liked the card. I agree. It's reliable. Um, I think it's one of a very small number of cards in this set that you can just sort of pick up and feel fairly safe that you'll be playing it in the final version of the deck. Uh, is one of a small number of commons, rather. And its top end is is pretty high, for sure. Like, there's plenty of ways to get something with with five health into the void and then have this thing turn into a 7-8. So 
it tends to be pretty powerful. It's not a strong tempo play because a 2-3 three for 3 isn't. So uh, I, I found a lot of games where the Gravewatch Ancestor is kind of hanging ar- around for a while, and sometimes you have to make up for the tempo that you've lost by by playing it. But that's really the only downside for it, because usually a 2-3 is uh, good enough to stop your opponent's 2-drops. So it's it's not even the worst in that respect. Um, yeah. there's fewer there's fewer three threes for three in this format than there were in the last format. So Gravewatch Ancestor is kind of on par with the other stuff people are doing. Yeah, and I think another thing is I don't know if you agree with this, but it there just feels like there aren't as many just big units. Sure. And so it's it's pretty easy for Gravewatch Ancestor to suddenly like be the biggest thing on the board, which yes. I think is. You know, like a pretty good place for a three drop. Yeah, it is. Um, and and you're getting a and you're getting like a six seven or a seven eight or whatever uh, on turn six if you need it. So yeah, that's uh, that's that can potentially be the um, the biggest thing that you can reasonably expect to get for six power. And you don't even have to spend another card. You've already got it on the board, and it can attack right away if you need it to. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a strong card. Uh, probably one of the best commons, but also kind of low-key one of the best commons because it does, uh, it, because its base rate isn't that impressive. So uh, it's really the sort... I, like, I'm going to play it in almost every time deck, but also, I'm like, there's a lot of ex- more exciting cards that I'll take over it. Yes. That are the actual, like, like hey, I'm going to actually win the game with these. And then there's Gravewatch Ancestor just kind of sitting there being like, hey, I'm your, I'm your backup plan. Um, you should have me in your deck because uh, you're going to need a backup plan if all of this other stuff doesn't go doesn't work out for you. This is our longstanding data collection, <laughs> our longstanding data collection project here at Farming Eternal, where our listeners send in seven win drafts either to farming eternal at gmail.com or post them to our seven win channel in the farming eternal discord either an exported deck list or any kind of eternal war cry link and then we use this segment to talk about that um and as always as well as thanking everyone who contributed and thanking john holio for actually entering all the lists so we have a few new contributors this week so Gwenaya, disc golf dan John D. Lull, Nosen, and Splodead, as well as our veteran contributors of Abinego, Aboss, Agent Dynamo, Allison, Beard Broken, Caruthers, Celtic Guardian 7, Comet, Darth Herman 2, Dubes, FS Forward Sound, Full Robot, Grandar, Grandmaster Sin, Hats on Lamps, Iris M, Jedi EJ, Jed the Homerid, J. Rune, Cassandrath, Mancio1982, Marky, Meagles, Mercurial Blue, MLNTN, Nothership, Pachi, LOTR, Porkchop Express, Psyduck, Sir Dragos, Sleffer 13, Spiffy Man, Sunblaze, Swedish Sean, Tempest Dragon King, Titus and Blossom, Twin Hex, Vader, Zuby. Wow, quite a list of names this week. Yeah, that's that's a that's a bunch. Got, uh, yes, we have our already ninety eight deck for this eight point one format. I guess is what we're calling it. Interesting things. I mean, it's really more of the same um, this past week. So time crept up a little bit. So it's above seventy percent of the decks again. Fire still at sixty. 
Shadow is about 50% of our decks have Shadow in it. Primal and Justice are both hovering right around 30% of the decks. Oh, that's interesting. I guess I would I guess I would have expected Primal and Justice to show up a little bit higher. Yeah, um and it's this is this week it felt like the rich continued to get richer. So once again, um FTJ and FTS um continued to outperform all the other decks and appear quite a bit more. Um TJP kind of is alone as like tier two. And then all all other seven factions are sort of on their own in sort of a they're a tier three of not appearing very often. With Ixton being the only deck that we have yet to see a copy of. What is Ixton again? Ixton is Fire Justice Primal. I guess I I, I never had a winning list in that color scheme either this whole format i'm just sort of scrolling through my my seven windex here and i don't see one nope nope yep. never did it never did it myself don't know well, you don't makes... even know what that would look like yeah i mean it kind of makes sense in the sense that it's not a supported tricolor faction and justice justice cards aren't particularly good Fire cards, I think, are have their are good, but have like a they're very niche. And I, Primal's pretty good. It's actually just kind of surprising that Primal's not doing not doing well um, to me because it feels like the Primal cards are just there's a lot of just generically good cards in Primal. Not as good as Time, obviously, which is maybe the problem. And uh, but I could just see like. Fire and Justice not uh, working great together when paired with Primal. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, it's like there could be an Armory deck there with just like Primal for Biting Winds or something, but nope. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, Primal's not as good of a splash color as it used to be because some of the some of the better Primal cards like Brood of Aramont require two Primal influence um, mm. and then... You, then the thing about the uncommons in Primal is still true, where those big flyers still need double Primal influence. So uh, there's not really as many reasons that you would splash. Like, you could splash for Biting Winds, um, but I don't know how often you would actually do that. Anyway, uh, so... I would do that, though maybe that's why I can't win a game of draft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I think if you, I think if you have, I think if you've got a couple of cards in your hand that you haven't played for the whole game, and then you play Primal and you leave like three power up for the first time, your opponent might put you on Biting Winds. <laughs> yeah. So that's the drawback there. But uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think Primal tends to be sort of a main color if you're going to play it at all. Um, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, my again, my anecdotal evidence is that I have primal in uh, probably more than half of my winning decks in this format. So uh, I'm a little bit biased towards it. So I tend to, I tend to keep drafting it because it's working for me. Yeah. No. Um, I, I I agree. Which is, I guess, the surprising part for me that it is, you know, not appearing all that much because you know. 
it's really at 30% more or less. So if it's in above 50% of your decks, you know, you're pulling the average up. And right. yeah, it's kind of interesting, especially with the fact that TJP is kind of, you know, the third most drafted archetype. But yeah. Yeah. How do the primal numbers end up low if that's the one of the most commonly drafted archetypes? Yeah, I think it's just the other three aren't, you know, don't appear that much. Okay. Yes. I don't know. I think actually, yeah, part of it is, uh, yeah, no, I don't know. Who knows? I have been, I personally have been drafting Shadow a lot less lately than I was. And uh, not zero. I've certainly had some successful Shadow decks, but um, it's, I think, out of all of the five factions, I've, I draft Shadow the least now. Uh, that's, again, just just me. Just the example of, of, of one person's drafting style, but um, I don't. I don't end up trying to draft shadow unless I see some of those really powerful uncommons, and then sometimes I even abandon those if the if if it's not flowing. Yeah. All right. So that was. I, I just wanted to touch on that really quickly, so we can move on to our main topic, which in this, what we're going to do is first talk about some of the commons that we're happy to pick pack one, and then. Uh, we kind of decided that Rectifier is still the top common um, in in set eight. And so we just wanted to kind of go through all of the uncommons and talk about whether we would pick them uh, before um, Rectifier or whether we would pick Rectifier before them, just to kind of give up everyone a concrete sense of what they should be looking at in the first couple picks. Yeah. What's better than Rectifier? Yeah. So, um, so should we should we start with the commons? Yeah, let's start with the commons. And the commons are. It's a little difficult talking about the commons in this set because there aren't a lot of generically good commons that you'll just play in any deck if you are playing those factions. Um, a lot of commons vary pretty wildly in the amount of value that they have, depending on what other cards are in your deck. I think more so than in in most sets. And then uh, it's the the same thing that we were talking about for um, for turn back time and blade crafter and other cards, where there's some very very strong cards for particular archetypes, but uh, they you don't necessarily want a bunch of copies of them. So maybe you don't pick them up as early in the draft as, as you might other cards of a similar power level. Siege Provisions is another one of those. Uh, so we tried to make a list here of cards that you it, it, that in the absence of a powerful rare or uncommon, you would pick up um, and be happy knowing that you'd probably play it in your final deck, uh, regardless of what kind of deck it is. So here's a few of those. Uh, one of them, uh, after, uh, of course, excluding Rectifier, because I think it's in a class by itself as far as the commons go in this set. Uh, so there's Burning Core Drake. That's our that's our 3-1 flyer for 3 in Fire. And um, that's just a good card, even though it has Reckless. It is doing what you want a 3-1 flyer to do, uh, which is attack. Uh, so most of the, and, and then uh, the upside is when it attacks three times, you've got it draws, uh, it makes three treasure troves, so you get to draw three cards over time, and so it's a very powerful upside for a card. I think you end up playing these in fire more often than not. Maybe not a ton of copies necessarily, but you play them. 
Uh, and then Gravewatch Ancestors on that list, and we already talked about that. I would say Humbug Nest is on that list. I know it's not as powerful as a lot of people said it was at first, but it is still a card that creates two creatures um, either on your turn or on your opponent's turn and can ambush things, and sometimes you trade one of your Humbugs for your opponent's 2-1 or 3-1 or something, and that's really good value. Uh, and then Humbug Nest is really powerful if you can... Uh, play a Majestic Skies or a Horn of Plenty or something to make your little flyers larger. Uh, there's a lot of uses for it. So I still say I'm still pretty happy to pick it up if there's nothing really exciting in the pack. There's Magnificent Stranger. It's the 2-3 three for 3 in time. A lot of these cards are in time. Uh, Magnificent Stranger is just a really good value uh, for the cost. It's a 2-3 and it costs 2. And when it attacks, it um, it reduces the... It reduces the cost of the next card in your deck, which is often very valuable. So even if your opponent uh, has strangers and can get value um, uh, that your Magnificent Stranger grants it, it's still, still still really good. There's Triumphant Return in Shadow, which is the only good Shadow common. Uh, <laughs> there's all, there might be other... There's others that are good. I'm pretty high on Switchblade Deadeye lately. I think uh, it's, a, it's pretty decent. But... Um, in terms of just a card that doesn't need any help to be good, Triumphant Return is solid. That's it costs three. It gets something. It gets a unit back from your void and gives it plus two, plus two permanently. Um, I, I think that's. Uh, it's generally a pretty hard to deal with a unit that you bring back with Triumphant Return. So I'm pretty happy picking up one early in a draft and knowing that I'll play it. Uh, that's a card where I would actually. I'm not sure how many copies of it I would play because I have literally never been offered more than one in a draft. As far as I know, there's some sort of weird algorithm preventing that from ever <laughs> happening. So <laughs> I, I don't know what it's like to have more than one in a deck. Uh, I don't get to ever do it. I would probably play two, probably not three. Anyway, there's Brood of Arama, which is a which is a, a three three flyer for for four. Maybe the most solid, like reliable common in the whole set in a lot of ways. Because the three three flyer for four is is great. Uh, the fact that there's so much anti-flying tech in this set makes it not as good, but uh, still, it's a really solid card. Fighting Winds, which we were discussing earlier, it's three, three primal for a uh, uh, for a spell that does six damage to an attacker, and uh, that's a that's a card that can kill relic weapons uh, too when your opponent is attacking you directly. So its value is 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 pretty high, really. And the only downside is that um, your opponent can see it see it coming if they're savvy. And then there's Dive Bomb, which is uh, just a really solid uh, combat trick. And Justice uh, gives plus one, plus four to two different units and flying for the turn. Um, so it's a really good combat trick and also a good way to finish the game if you've got a, a couple of large units. Uh, and that's about it. Uh, all of the other car, all of the other commons are. There's a lot of other playable commons. But they tend to be uh, cards that you end up cutting from the final deck, or or, or they're filler. Uh, they're not they're not cards that you would get excited about. Uh, there's a lot of cards that are sort of on the borderline for me. There's Book Club Yeti. There's Sky King Storyteller. Uh, things like that, where I'm not uh, miserable if I pick them up early, but also they're not cards where I'm like, great, this was still a fine pick. They're it's still like the that's at the point where. Uh, I'm no longer like happy, and I'm afraid that my draft might not have the the the, the just the raw strength that needs to compete. But again, Book Club Yeti is an amazing card if you end up in the relic deck. So it's still like the variance between the low end and the high end on some of those cards is pretty high. So uh, you can pick them up and then 
later your draft might coalesce around those cards so that they become much more valuable than they seemed at first. But the the number of meat and potatoes common cards in this set is really pretty low because I just listed off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight cards. That's not very many when it comes to commons. It's a strange set that way. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So I think... Yeah, so what what we're going to do now is kind of just go through all of the uncommons and kind of rate them against Rectifier and whether we would take them. So Hats and I sort of went through and we made sort of a, a war card link of every card we have above and below Rectifier. And our lists are pretty similar, so a lot of them will go through very quickly. And then there's a handful of cards that we kind of disagreed on that we probably will discuss further. So I'm going to use um, Hatz's list as a baseline and then just mention any disagreements I had. So first up is Kindling Carver, which is the one fire, one one that you can exhaust and sacrifice a unit to draw a card um, for a turn and subtract one from its cost. And then you discard it at the end of your turn. So uh, this card, I think, is an interesting card to have uh, above Rectifier because I think this is one of those cards where you're sort of picking this speculatively because there are decks where it's not great in, but it can be very powerful. Yeah, I put it above Rectifier too, and I think I'm a I I, I think I've changed my mind about it too over the course of the format. Uh, I think that Kindling Carver is obviously at its best in a deck where you're expecting to sacrifice a lot of units, and uh, it's it's good when you have a lot of like corrupted units so that you do have a way of sacrificing them when you need to and then using their corrupted ability again. But I think most decks are going to have enough of those kind of units that Kindling Carver is never going to be useless. And also, it's just good at recycling resources because the way this set plays out, there's a lot of board stalls. And if you have like a even just a 2-2 that's being blocked by a 2-3, so it just isn't relevant to the game anymore, um, and it's late enough in the game where you're pretty sure you'll be able to play the card that comes off of Kindling Carver, just trade that thing in. Um, it's a great way of just sort of like recycling uh, the cards in your deck that go out of date or are blanked by your opponent's cards or... You know, if they have like a permafrost on them or something, there's just a lot of things. There's just a lot of problems that Kindling Carver solves. So as a speculative pick, it's not even that risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I we talked about this in the sack episode that we did. I still find myself running out of resources a little bit with Kindling Carver, but um, personally, but I, I still would pick it above Rectifier and do find it to be a yeah. potentially strong card. Yeah, like you don't have to use it. It can sit on the board for a while, not doing anything, and then when you need it, it's there. Uh, also, yeah. your opponent will tend to think that you're playing it for a purpose and maybe use an entire removal spell on it. Yes, I, that that is true. <laughs> it's super which is funny. kind of a funny because that I always feel like lowers a card in my mind because you're like, well, this never survives to do anything anyway. But when your one drop soaks up a removal spell, yeah, um, and this is sort of. Um, yeah, we'll talk about this later. Anyway, okay, so next is Defile, uh, mm-hmm. which is the two shadow kill a creature with cost three or less and put it in your graveyard. 
and it's a fast spell. And so this, you know, just fits the mold of removal's good. This is remo cheap removal. So yeah, there's not a lot to say about it. It's just a great card. All right. Then this is our first disagreement. Um, you have Inner Peace Ascendant in here, which is the two-time 1-3 flyer where you can pay for to return a relic from your graveyard to your hand. Yeah, I'm I'm a lot uh I'm I like this card a lot more than I used to after playing with it a little bit. Uh it doesn't look like much. A 1/3 flyer for 2 is already good though. And uh it can attack with impunity. There's not a lot of weapons in this format, but uh if you do put a weapon on this thing, it's completely unstoppable. Uh, also, it's the single best thing to put a precision plunge on. That's the uh one-time spell that gives a flying unit uh deadly and killer so inner peace ascendant can because it's invulnerable on your own turn can attack and kill anything if you put a precision plunge on it and precision plunge is such a powerful card i like to play it if i can but sometimes you don't end up with enough flyers that you can use it profitably uh so but you just have like inner peace ascendant and a couple of humbug nests and then precision plunge is amazing so uh, the the fact that it gets back relics is super relevant in this specific format because, uh, like I was talking about earlier with Turn Back Time, being able to get back a relic weapon or a waystone gate uh, is insane. <laughs> so you might not end up with those cards in your deck uh, if you pick up an Inner Peace Ascendant, but there's enough of them sort of going around. Wormstone is another good one. There's enough of them sort of hanging around uh, and the, the upside from being able to get them back with no penalty, like turn back time doesn't let you reuse them after the second time, but Inner Peace Ascendant just, just gets them back. Um, sometimes your opponent will mill you or something, and there will be a relic in your yard, and Inner Peace Ascendant gets that back. There's just enough cases where Inner Peace Ascendant is amazing uh, that, um, that I take it speculatively, and I'm never sad that I've done it. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about it, like, in you know, there are a couple good relic weapons, but... I was thinking a lot of the relics that you want to get back are mostly Waystone Gate and Bottled Storm, which are both uncommon and sort of highly sought after cards. So you don't necessarily see them that often. I agree. Wormstone is a pretty good pickup, too. But, you know, I don't know. And like you, I mean, I'm just repeating you. Like you said, it does go well with Precision Strike, but... I've been less excited about just, like, the 1-3 body. Um, you know, there's Illumination Wisp, the 1-3 flying Endurance. And just that card always feels like it underperforms in in anything that's not a Majestic Skies deck just because there are so few weapons. And so that's kind of where I was putting Inner Peace. But I do agree that there are a lot of these sort of small synergies beyond just like inner pieces text about returning a relic that might make it, you know, maybe higher than I'm currently rating it. I think it's a card where all of the little pieces together add up to a really excellent card where mm -hmm. like the individual aspects of it, like it's stats or, you know, it's, uh, it's invulnerability on your own turn because it's attacking, but it's usually attacking for one. So that doesn't seem that impressive. But when you just sort of start putting it all together with the other cards in this set, um, and also the the probably the strongest single archetype in the set is still 
creation um, with recurring relic weapons and inner peace ascendant is just a bit of redundancy for that you know you want yeah. enough ways to bring back your strong relic weapons and inner peace ascendant is just a super easy way to do that on it's like a you know it's a soul drain smithing or a turn back time on a stick in that deck which is pretty darn good yeah which is actually a really great thing for that deck because at least when i draft it i can have you know, there are a lot of times where, where you end up with three ways to recur a weapon in your hand and you're just like really waiting to draw a weapon and sure, sure. inner peace kind of mitigates that by at least being a body on the board and then can wait for you to pick up that weapon. Yeah, and it can block a lot of two and three drops on its own. So it's uh, it, it's a way to set up that deck to survive until the long game. So it just sort of does its job very well. Yeah, and for those of you wondering what order we're doing this in, because we are we did make an Eternal War Cry link, this is in um, casting cost order. So it's, yeah. it's not by <laughs> color or anything. So if yeah, it's not, if they're not by the strongest, it's not by faction, nothing. It's just the order that Eternal War Cry put them in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so for our next two drop, Majestic Skies, uh, not much to say about this. This no. is the... The two Elysian um, gives your flyers plus one, plus one. You can pay six to draw a flyer. This is just a generically strong card. And even though it's multi-faction, I think it's worth picking up early. All right, then you have um, Provoke the Dragons here, which is the two primal deal two damage. Your um, dragons gain berserk. Yeah, I'm not going to defend this passionately, but it is a two damage for two spell, which is fine. Uh, and then that's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Ever since I got burned on thinking Char was like a really good card, I've just been, I don't know. I just feel like two damage spells tend to underperform. And even when you're paying one for them and paying two for them is even worse. That's fair. Uh, I, I could be convinced to take this off the list. I, I just still would take it because there's so little removal in the format. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, there's enough dragons in the format that occasionally the, the additional text of letting your dragons go berserk is relevant. But uh, I'm not going to pretend that that happens all the time. Yeah. All right. Then next is Seer, which is the two fire, three damage spell, uh, fast spell. And again, this is just a generically good removal spell yep. that you should take highly. Yep. Um, then... You have Shardbinder on your list, which is the two-time 3-1 with Overwhelm, and your Relic Activations and uh, what's it called? And Spellcraft costs three. Your first Relic Activation or Spellcraft for the turn costs three less. Yes. So I guess this is always going to be something of a speculative pick. I have I have cut it from final decks. Uh, I think it's similar to Inner Peace Ascendant in the sense that it's so powerful when it's good that I like to pick it up early because there's no replacing the effect that it has. Like mm -hmm. the amount of value that you get from being able to play. Uh, and also there's sort of a wider variety of things that it works with. It's obviously pretty broken with something like Waystone Gate because you can play the Waystone Gate and immediately get an activation off of it. Same thing for Bottled Storm. Um, uh, Siege Provisions, you get a free activation off of it every turn. Uh, the Enchanted Plate Mail, which is the 3-3 for 5 Injustice uh, Relic Weapon, 
but it has a spellcraft uh, uh, spellcraft two where you play inspire and that draws a card and gives the next thing in your deck plus one plus one you get that uh, inspire for free there's just a lot of little things that are dramatically better if you have a shard binder on the board so uh, and also it is a it is a three one uh, with onslaught for what, onslaught no it just says overwhelm not onslaught is a completely different ability. Anyway, no, it's a three one for with it's a three one with overwhelm for two, which is you know pretty good anyway. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I've I've been picking them up fairly early, and I definitely would pick it up over rectifier because rectifier's ability of removing problems that your opponent presents you with uh, there's some redundancy there. There's a lot of cards that do that. Whereas Shardbinder, um, nothing else does what it does. So when I end, if I end up with a deck that would like to have Shardbinder, I'm not going to get that many chances at it. Uh, so I've been, uh, I've been happy picking it up a little earlier than you might think. But also that's partly because of the kind of deck that I tend to draft. Because I'll pick up things like... Um, Oh, let's see. Uh, there's those. Uh, there's those two mana uh, primal relics like uh, uh, Frost oh, Talisman and Storm Talisman. Yeah, Frost yeah. Talisman and Storm Talisman. And I think I'm the only uh, drafter that picks up a Storm Talisman and is happy about it. <laughs> but but uh, if you have a shard binder in play, Storm Talisman it costs two primal. Uh, its summon ability is Scout, and that's all. But then when you uh, if you spend eight power, you can do two damage to any target. Uh, that's five power with Shardbinder, and you can do it every turn if you want. And and that's a lot of value. It may not sound like a lot, but if you can do it over and over again, it starts to add up. Uh, but the other one that's probably better is uh, Frost Talisman, which stuns something when it comes into play for two, and then you spend seven to draw a card. If you've got a Shardbinder in play, you're only spending four uh, to draw a card. And if you can do that repeatedly, you're probably winning that game. So... It, it, because I tend to draft cards like that and play them maybe a little bit more often than some people, Shardbinder goes way up in value for me because that's just my style of drafting. So again, got to value cards for yourself. If you don't want to play that kind of deck, Shardbinder is not going to be worth that much to you. But um, if you are comfortable playing the sort of relics that don't do anything immediately kind of a deck, then Shardbinder is going to be one of the best cards that you have at your disposal. So that's my justification. Okay, yeah, I think this fits the theme of Inner Peace Ascendant, mm-hmm. where it's just, uh, I'm I'm less comfortable picking these, like, slightly lower power, more speculative picks, while I think Rectifier, you know, I guess I view, I think there are fewer answers than, than maybe you're giving credit for, so I do, like, have, you know, like, the Rectifier is just generically good, I don't know. I can see. I just I usually wait to have a Waystone Goat or a Bottled Storm before I start picking up Shard Binders. But like you said, when those are in your deck, Shard Binders an incredible card. All right. So then next, I actually put Touch of Battle on my list, which is the two-time give a unit death um, deadly and then give a unit spell or weapon in your hand deadly as a card I would pick over Rectifier and. I guess this goes against what I was saying, where there are decks where this is probably not great, but it can be so powerful that I think I would take it above a rectifier. Yeah, I think uh, that's just I I I I I could buy that. 
Um, this is something that's maybe just sort of a personal taste right now because I, I really do like Touch of Battle. Um, I just haven't found myself prioritizing it lately. Yeah, no, I agree. And I don't even know if <laughs> Touch of Battle is necessarily better. And it could just be a rarity bias where I, even though I <laughs> I kind of would rather have a rectifier in my deck, I'm more likely to get a rectifier. So I just take the Touch of Battle. But yeah. Yeah, I think I'm. I think Touch of Battle is the best of the touch spells, mm-hmm. and yet still they feel like they're usually some form of card disadvantage for me. Like I'm yeah. pumping up two of the other cards in my deck at the price of spending an entire card, so that doesn't always feel great. Um, touch of Battle. It's a weird thing because I've been, I've had Touch of Battle reverberating strike played against me in this format and it's devastating that's where touch of battle gives your reverberating strike which does one damage to everything uh, deadly so it kills all of your units and leaves your opponent's units untouched and that's obviously a really great um spell uh, or that's really a really great combo and i've had it in my decks before where i've got one touch of battle and one reverberating strike and then i've cut both cards from my deck because I figured, well, they're not great on their own, and the combo's not going to come up that often, so I'd rather just have a bunch of cards that work yes. all the time. And so I, I I think I've had three or four decks where I've had that come up. I've got a touch of battle. I've got a reverberating strike. It's a killer combo. I'm not going to play it. <laughs> it's kind of a weird deal. No, I, I think that's very true. I think it's it's very iffy, even though the combo's so good. It's I don't know, putting reverberating strike in your deck without other ways to make it better, like plus one spell damage, is just sort of asking for trouble. The dream for me is to have a time primal fire deck where my reverberating strike can either get a touch of battle on it or some spell damage from other sources. So it's very rarely a bad card. Uh, That has not yet happened. For me, but I can imagine a deck where it does. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, then um, continuing our disagreements, you have <laughs> you have two face on this list, yeah, which is the two shadow two two with deadly, um, and it mills two cards, and I it has corrupted two. Yeah, just love me some two face, and I think this is. This one's very. This one's pretty close for me because a two-two for two with deadly is very good. It has the corrupted synergy. Um, I still would take rectifier because, like you, like we've been saying, it deals with problems. And two-face does it too, but it's a little bit less proactive in how it, it can deal with problems. I'll tell you why I value it so high is because uh, there are because waystone gate and. Wormstone are cards that are taken and played very, very commonly in this format. And Rectifier is not a great solution to either one. Mm-hmm. But at least Two-Face is capable of stopping the, someone from running you over with those. There's not a lot of ways to deal with the giant, with 7-7s seven or 8-8s eight in this format. You know, there's not a lot of hard removal. So uh, Two-Face is, is, is fine for what it is, but then it gives you a little bit of insurance against somebody uh, pulling out some really giant ground pounders against you. And there's ways of dealing with Two-Face, but 
also even if it even if it gets silenced or something well i guess if it gets silenced then it's not that much value but it can also like it can block something and kill it and then it can jump block something again or you can sacrifice the shade to something that it leaves behind like there's just a lot going on with it um so i'm i tend to be pretty excited when i see two-face in a pack and i would take it over rectifier because it's cheaper uh <laughs> it's cheaper and it does a lot for its cost and again it does something that you can't um, that you can't do otherwise. Uh, I know that I could say that about Rectifier too, but I'm more likely to see a couple of copies of Rectifier than I am to see a couple of copies of Two Face. Mm -hmm. And then next is Keeper's Shield, which is the three Rakano three one relic weapon with Spellcraft three play reinforce, which is uh, gives you plus four armor. So it's um, either a three one for three or a three five for six. Yes. Or if you have a shard binder in play, a three five for three. <laughs> yes, yes, goes well with shard binder. Um, yeah, I I don't have this card quite as highly as you, just because it's it has the this card uh, falls below rectifier when you add the two color tax. Yeah, I, I would buy that too. Yeah, I if I were actually forced to choose between the two of these and pick one pack one, um, I might still take Rectifier over it. Um, but if I'm a couple of picks in and it seems like I might be able to draft the creation deck, I would value this higher than Rectifier. Yes, no, I, I that I that I can believe. All right, then. Um, well, I'll lump these two together. I put both Earth Conjuring and Fire Conjuring as something I would pick over Rectifier. You know, these are probably two of the worst conjuring or the two worst conjurings, but still, I don't know. I still value it invoke pretty highly. Um, and so even if they're situational and you don't get incredible value from them, just the fact that you're potentially drawing a legendary late game with these cards puts them above Rectifier for me. Yeah, uh, and and that makes sense. I've just had too many games where I've had an Earth Conjuring in hand, hoping to get an invoke that will save me, and failing. Uh, yes. Where I now no longer want that to happen very often. Um, <laughs> it's it's a fine card. Uh, I just don't value it as high as I used to. Uh, in this case, Rectifier would be more reliable. And I know I feel, I'm sort of ping ponging back and forth between reliability and potential um but with both fire conjuring and earth conjuring like the floor for them where like the worst case scenario uh that it's so low like you can yeah. end up with earth conjuring doing literally nothing um and fire conjuring doing almost nothing so i think that that's that's where they lie for me now is yeah. that I, I don't like having a card in my hand that could potentially do nothing at all to affect the game yes like, Fire Conjuring is never going to do zero things, um, but it might not do anything that has a lasting effect on, on the outcome of a game. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, the nice thing about Fire Conjuring, I guess, I don't. I actually like it slightly less than Earth Conjuring, even though I, I'm saying something positive about this, is like, you, you know, at least it's like, it can often be like a two for two, where you're like, you pump your guy so that you can trade off using two cards and killing their guy but if it's late in the game at least you got to decimate and then draw a card sure. out of the exchange so you're not actually behind but yeah no i agree like i just said i would play that 
play them if I was in in those colors at the end. And in, Invoke just can be so powerful that I still pick them pretty highly. Um, next, a card we agree on is Mark Maker, which is the three fire, three two, summon play a plus one weapon with Overwhelm on one of your units and Corrupted two. And this one is very close to Rectifier for me, where I this is a, one of the cards where I debated a little bit. I think it's good because it, it goes very well in like a fire deck that's trying to attack. So it can be like a really great card. But, you know, it actually, when you just like compare it straight up to a Rectifier, it, you know, it doesn't seem super great because it, tr it trades for a Rectifier. Though I guess you're giving something else plus three or plus one in Overwhelm. So it's still affecting the board, which is, yeah. I guess, you know, kind of why it, it goes over the hump for me. Yeah, I think it's I think it's close. There's There's been plenty of times where I've either played a two-drop and had it get killed, and then I have to play a Mark Maker and lose the value of getting a weapon because it can't play a weapon on itself, or it's just the first card that you're able to play, and then it's the same problem. Um, so... Uh, I think sometimes it, it feels like it's not all that impressive, but when it's good, it's very good. Like uh, like I was talking about those like those large units like uh, like Wormstone, um, where giving it overwhelm is actually quite relevant because there's a lot of chump blockers in this format. With all of those units that have corrupted chump blocking, is can sometimes be very strong, and Markmaker solves that problem really uh, really really succinctly. Anyway, but it's not uh, it's not one of the most powerful cards on this list. Um, it's just sort of a versatile card where you can spread the uh, the stats that it provides you uh, around. It gives you a three two, and it also gets something else that makes it and makes it better. It's one of the few ways to put a weapon on a flying unit um, in this entire format. There's not a lot of weapons that you can put on units, and Mark Maker provides one. So you know, it's just sort of a good card. Uh, but it's not usually an exciting card. Again, though, it provides an effect that you can't really get very easily uh, elsewhere. So I, I tend to like to pick up on commons that are um, that are that way. Mm -hmm. um, but like a couple of picks into a pack, um, I would probably and the, the, depending on which way my deck was starting to go, might pick up Rectifier over this uh, if I'm already in time. Certainly, because this isn't a reason to go into fire for me anymore. I, I don't like it as much as I did even at the start of the format. Yeah, interesting. Since you uh, we picked up a totally useless Mark Maker last week in in the draft, where fourth pick, you're like, oh, let's speculate on a Mark Maker, and I was like, are you sure we shouldn't take the third Rectifier? Well, that's because the third rectifier goes way down in value for me. <laughs> like, we haven't talked a lot about this, but the number of rectifiers I want to play in a deck is exactly two. I don't want to play more than that because I hate having... For, so I think the temptation is to think that you've got a, a curve of units and then rectifier is a three drop. It's not a three drop. There's very few two or three drops that your opponents can play that you want to silence. And so you're just sort of playing this random 2-1 at some point in the game in order to deal with a problem that your opponent has presented you with. But I've had so many games where I have a rectifier in my hand and I don't play it on the third or fourth or fifth turn of the game because I'm waiting for an appropriate target and I'm not doing anything. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, I, I don't like to have a whole bunch of rectifiers in my hand, and that's what happens if you play more than two of them. I'd rather not be in a position where I pick up a thousand rectifiers early in the draft, and then uh, I don't end up with enough playables because I don't want to play that many copies of the thing. No, I can see that. I think I would pick up the third because I don't know. I just really want. I really want it when I really need it. I mean, this is kind of tongue in cheek, but. I did talk about last week where I had a draft with four of them and then lost two games to like a single unit I needed to silence and didn't sure. draw them. <laughs> but I don't know. I I think when you need it, you really need it. So I don't mind going a little higher than two, but I, I understand um, when you're always able to draw exactly the card you need, how you would need less. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can... With no resentment at all, I can hear in your voice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. And then um, a, f- a couple more non-controversial cards. We have quite a, a slew of them here. Um, so Pack Conjuring, Water Conjuring, we both agree. Pretty high picks. Um, sure, we sure. pick over Rectifier. They do powerful things. The Pack Conjuring is the three Shadow Shadow, give a unit plus attack minus health equal to the highest attack among units in your void decimate invoke a shadow card so again this is sort of conditional removal but i find it it is on often enough that it's worth putting in your deck it's gonna kill something it might not kill the biggest thing on the board if that's what you want to kill but it's going to kill something yes um, and then Water Conjuring is the three Primal Primal, stun two enemy units, decimate, invoke, primal. And once again, these effects, format after format, are just really underappreciated and just win games out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, stun effects that you can cast at fast speed are particularly good because they can mess up combat for your opponent. You know, they, if they play a combat trick, or they double block one of your units, you can really wreck them with a Water Conjuring. Then there is Waystone Gate, which is the three-time pay three to draw a sigil of your choice from your deck. After the third use, sacrifice Waystone Gate. In Tomb, if it's your turn, play an 8-8 Giant. Very good card. Yeah, take it over basic, a lot of rares even. Yes. And then Wind Conjuring, uh, which is the final Conjuring, the three Justice Justice Wind Conjuring, Ready a unit, it gets plus four, plus four, and endurance this turn, decimate, invoke justice. Uh, Probably the best trick in the in the game, or uh, mm-hmm. in this set, and um, it's very strong. It is interesting to note, the only other justice card, which we'll get to, is Zoltan Arbalist that we have on this list. So justice, I think commons and uncommons are kind of in a, a weird spot, where they're just like... So, a surprising number of them feel niche or just not very good. Yeah, they're yeah, that's exactly the problem with them. They're niche, um, or else they're just weird and expensive or, or whatever. They've all got problems. So it's just Wind Conjuring and Arbalist that you're actually excited to see. Yep. Uh, then there's Dark Mass Stalker, which is the four Shadow Shadow 3-5. When a unit goes to the enemy void, Dark Mass Stalker gets its battle skills. Mastery 12, the enemy player discards the top 12 cards of their deck. And this triggers its passive ability. Because it's not when a unit dies, it's when it goes to the void. Yeah, you um, can 
It works if your opponent discards cards. It works if you mill cards off of your opponent's deck. It works if you kill something on purpose. Um, it's a it's a deceptively strong ability, and it has good stats for its cost anyway. Yeah, exactly. All right, then uh, Plagued Griffin, which is the four primal primal one five. Flying summon Electropy on an enemy unit, Corrupted 6, and Electropy is a, is a curse that you play on a unit, and then it at the end of that player's turn, it deals one damage to them. Uh, we talked about this a lot last week. Uh, it's just a, a good card, and, you know, we kind of, <laughs> I kind of trash-talked it, talked it a little bit, but it's still a very good card, and definitely, I think, worth picking up over a Rectifier. I'm usually pretty excited to see it. The only thing that the the thing that I like the least about it is that it costs exactly the same amount as Brood of Aramot. So if I happen to be in a deck that's concentrating on Primal Flyers, then my 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 four drop slot tends to get a little clogged up. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I, I'm always really happy to see this thing uh, if yeah. I happen to be playing pretty much any kind of Primal deck, honestly. Yes. All right, and then you have Victor's Feast here. I do. Which which is the four Praxis spell, create and draw a power burst, and zero one Totemite, a treasure trove, and an eight eight giant. So this is a card that's gone uh, pretty wildly up and down in my estimation over the course of this format. I was really excited when I first saw it because it literally says draw four cards on it. Um, But the four cards are not amazing. Uh, the 8-8 Giant costs 8, so it's not an amazing card by itself. You do have to get up to 8 power to play it, or 7 power, because one of your cards that Victor's Feast creates gives you an extra power for the turn. But um, And then I just kind of... I, I tried playing it a couple of times in early decks, and it seemed awkward, so I stopped trying to play with it. And then I learned, over the course of the format, how to draft a good slow deck. Um, and how to draft a deck that could take control of the game and play powerful cards gradually. And in that kind of deck, Victor's Feast is amazing because it draws a card to replace itself. The Treasure Trove uh, draws a card, and it generates an endgame threat, the 8-8 Giant. It makes a 0-1 Totemite to chump block, giving you more time to control the board. Um, It's a huge amount of value for one card. And if you have drafted a deck that's good at controlling the board and elongating games and playing long games uh, to the point where you generate enough value to kill your opponent, Victor's Feast is fantastic. But I had to learn how to draft a deck that was capable of doing that and do it fairly consistently in this format before Victor's Feast became a good card. Now I have enough confidence in my ability to make a deck like that that Victor's Feast is good. At the beginning of the format, I didn't know how to do it, so Victor's Feast was bad. So it's my own skill in the format that has changed the way I rate the card. Yeah. Yeah, I I still have... I drafted it only a couple times and didn't have, like, great success with it, but I may not have yet turned the corner on drafting, being able to draft the right deck for it. So I, I could see it. I think I'd be more happy if there was like more looting effects or something where you could really take advantage of, you know, going up four cards or three oh, cards sure. with if it. You could, like discard some. If you could discard the totemite to draw a real card, for for example, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I yeah I see it's, that. it's a very alluring card. I don't. I just 
Yeah, again, it it falls for me below that line, you know, where it's a little too conditional for me to feel, you know, I'd rather just have the generically strong card and rectifier, but I do like the fact that you have it on this list. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm as surprised as you, honestly. Uh, I there was a point in this in the format when I certainly wouldn't have put it there. I just thought it was too awkward and slow a card. But now, oh man, I mean, the best deck that I've drafted in this format was a creation deck, a time fire justice deck that was all about um, recurring relic weapons and other powerful effects. And Victor's Feast was amazing in that deck. If you mm-hmm. turn back time, this thing, you probably won the game. Uh, and that's a very long-term play, obviously, and it's sort of greedy. But that's what the deck was built to do, was to do that kind of thing um, right. uh, over and over and over again. So it was, it was great. <laughs> uh, it was a super fun deck, and, and uh, I won a lot of games just being able to make... Um, uh, what what is uh, make a just being able to cast Victor's Feast um, in the mid game to sort of bridge my way to the end game, which I which the deck was incapable of losing, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, just with and, a solid uh, role player. As as we've learned, an eight eight is just very powerful in this format. There's there's like one card in the whole format that can kill it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, next, again, we have a slew of cards we agree on. The aforementioned Zoltan Arbalist, which is the four Justice Justice one four relic weapon with Warcry, summon plus two attack this turn. Fate, you gain one armor. Um, just a generically good weapon. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fine. The Warcry makes it quite good. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so. <laughs> And so that sometimes you're just attacking into a small unit, even if you're not killing it, just to get the war cry. Yep. Um, next is Dancing Flame, which is the five fire four four fate. Dancing Flame gets charge, or plus two plus two, or its cost is reduced by two. Again, um, you know, two of these abilities make this an above rate unit. And then, you know, sometimes you roll charge, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not. Yeah, it's it's so far above rate for uh, for a unit, no matter, like, what it decides to randomly be, that um, uh, it's, it ends up being just a generically powerful card. It's unpredictable, but all of, it's, it's, it's just good. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much to and say about it. And it's not even, I think a lot of the swings... I mean, obviously, it's great when it's a three cost four four, but like, if you have to wait till turn five to play a six six, you know, you're you're probably okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's bigger than the other things that cost that much, so yeah. it's it, it's kind of hard to deal with that thing, you know. Like, I've been on both sides of the table with a five five six six, and uh, it's just sort of always a problem. Yeah. Um, right. And if then you can ever air- bring it back from the void, then it gets another ability and it gets better. So. Exactly. Then there's Aramot's Machinations, which is the five Xenon uh, spell. Play a one-cost unit, a two-cost unit, and a three-cost unit from your Void. They get plus one, plus one, and Overwhelm. This is just a lot of value in a card. Yeah, just a huge amount of value. You don't need a. You don't need to be bringing back three units from your Void either. You can be bringing back two units from your Void, and it's still great. If you're yes. even bringing back one three-cost unit from your Void... It's not bad, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you play it, you don't have to. Co- you don't have to play the thing again. The Arab Mats Machinations puts it right into play. 
So it's not even I, a bad rate. Yeah, it's what's really interesting. Yeah, if you're bringing back a three quest unit, I mean, obviously it's not a bomb per se then, but like it's not that much worse than a dark return, which yeah. costs one, gives it plus one, plus one, but no overwhelm. This is, you know, costing you, it's like a two cost dark return that gives plus one, plus one and overwhelm, which I think people would pick up. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, so it's 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 real good because the high end is absurd, and then uh, at its worst, it's still good. All right, and then there is Fear Tracker, which is the five shadow shadow five four summon. Fear Tracker deals three damage to the enemy player. You gain three life. Corrupted four. This is just a very good card. Um, yeah, it's big. It gains you life. Deals damage to your opponent. Kind of does everything you need a card to do, and you can it do does. it again. Yeah. Yeah, I've had someone uh I've had someone get this thing back from the void against me before and it's it's a super depressing thing to see happen <laughs> because yes, it is. By itself it's draining 12 life from you in that case and gaining 12 and there's nothing you can do to stop it and it's just so brutal. Yes. I agree. And a All lot right, of people and- are talking about. Uh, I've seen a lot of people on my stream talk about the combo between Fear Tracker and Tainted Mark, which is the five primal relic uh, that draws you a card whenever a, a unit deals damage to your opponent. Um, that's not a combo. That's just a minor synergy. But they talk about it as though it's a combo because Fear Tracker automatically draws you a card when it comes into play while draining them, and then draws you another card uh, if it dies and you activate the shade ability. So it feels like a game-winning combo rather than just two cards that basically work okay together. Yeah. Yeah, that seems... That's a lot less exciting than the Electropy combo. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Plague Griffin plus uh, Tainted Mark is amazing, whereas Fear Tracker is merely good. Uh, But still, it's exciting enough that people are like, you know, you're going to get the Fear Tracker combo? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, that's a good card. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I would two great, two great uh, tastes that taste great together. Indeed. Of. Yeah, that's right. You don't even need to mix them together. I would say that Fear Tracker and Dark Mask Stalker, just the mere presence of those as uncommons in Shadow, are two of the biggest reasons that I'll end up playing Shadow at all in this format. Yeah. Um. All right, and then. Next, I put Mysterious Waystone. This is this is my most speculative pick. Yeah. <laughs> I just really like the card, so I would pick it above Rectifier. Um, and uh, just as a reminder, it is the five Shadow Shadow uh, Cursed Relic, and it deals one damage to your opponent, and you gain one life, and then every time you sacrifice a unit, that goes up one. Yeah, and... Uh... Well, I mean, how do you feel about the card right now? You've played with it a lot more than I have. Yeah, I actually haven't played with it very recently. Um, it feels like other people are higher on it than they used to be. And so, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I see it more often now. Um, I've certainly played against it a lot more often than I used to. Um, and I still, I think, you know, to me, actually, it's funny that you mention it. Um, it, that you mentioned Victor's Feast because I kind of feel like the same way with Mysterious Waystone is like you can put this in a deck and not have it work great for you but you can really just build a deck where you can't you know if I almost feel like 
if you're building a deck where Victor's Feast is good, like Mysterious Waystone would probably be great in that deck. Yeah, maybe in the same deck. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, but not you're right. I, it applies in a similar way for sure. And I may experiment more with Mysterious Waystone in the future. I want to talk briefly about my last seven win deck because it did have a Mysterious Waystone in it. It was mm-hmm. a Felm deck with mostly a mill theme, but it also had a little sub theme that I've been wanting to draft successfully ever since I got beaten down with it uh, uh, about a week ago, which is having a Mysterious Waystone in your deck but also playing uh, a, a few copies of Book Club Yeti and Nesting Raven. Nesting Raven is the 0-4 uh, for one primal that uh, has an ability to sacrifice itself for no additional cost uh, to produce a 1-1 flyer. And Book Club Yeti can sacrifice itself to deal damage to an enemy unit equal to the highest cost among relics that you control. Both of them are unique in this set in the sense that they can sacrifice themselves for no cost. So... The dream is to have them on the board already, play Mysterious Waystone, immediately sacrifice your Ravens for, to, be, to produce Flyers, and sacrifice Yetis to kill basically anything because you just played a 5-cost Relic, so your Yetis now deal 5, and then power up the Mysterious Waystone immediately and give your opponent a big problem to deal with. Um, this I've been wanting to draft that deck for a while. I've done it a few times unsuccessfully. This time was very successful, and... Uh, it's a very strong sort of... I'm not sure if it's a strong archetype by itself, but it's certainly a strong sub-theme to have in an otherwise good film deck. Uh, and it was a lot of fun to play with it. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the uh, deceptively strong things of Mysterious Waystone is there's like a lot of cards that like weirdly synergize with Mysterious Waystone, so it doesn't necessarily have to be like... an fts sacrifice deck right you know there's just like enough (laughs) there's just like enough corrupted or in primal enough cards that sack themselves that you know it fits in you know a surprising number of decks or you can make it work in a surprising number of decks yeah uh book club yeti is my favorite combo with it by far because they make each other work you know yeti powers up the mysterious waystone waystone powers up the book club yeti i think that maybe uh, straight up the best thing that you can play with Waystone. But um, but there are a lot of things that sacrifice themselves. Uh, and as we've said before multiple times, uh, everything with Corrupted can sacrifice itself. So, yeah. All right. And then um, the final four cards we have are Thunder of Wings, which is the five fire spell. Play a 4-2 dragon with flying and charge. You may exhaust the unit to play Thunder of Wings for two less. Again, this is just a, a generically good card. Having a three-cost, four-two flying charge unit is just a very good rate. And so, yeah. it's a it lot of fun. it's a lot of stats to put on the board that early. And it's fine even if you have to spend five on it. Four-two, yes. four-two charges is decent. I agree. And then Nahid's Distillation, the six-time. Spell, draw three cards. You may exhaust a unit to play Nahid's Distillation for two less. Uh, drawing three cards is really good, especially for four. Yeah. Uh, you see this in a lot of constructed decks in Expedition as well, because it is absurdly good, no matter mm-hmm. what. <laughs> it's a dumb, dumb card. Yeah. <laughs> then uh, Corpse Bloom, the seven-time-time, seven-seven Endurance. Summon, put a unit into its owner's hand, Corrupted three. Uh, one of the 
biggest best finishers in the game. Yep, pretty hard to deal with. It attacks mm-hmm. without having to. Um, it attacks and blocks. And it's mm-hmm. huge, and it controls the board when it comes down. Yep. It's super good. Uh, it is expensive, you know? Like, you don't want to load up on a ton of 7-drops, no matter how successful some people seem to randomly be playing nothing but 7-drops in their decks occasionally. Uh, <laughs> referring back to the conversation we were having before we started recording. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, no, I, I pick up Corpse Blooms pretty early, and then I play them in decks, and they are really strong when they come down. So, yeah, uh, just a good card. Also, it has a surprisingly uh, cheap corrupted cost. Like, being able to spend three to bounce another enemy unit, it's really hard for your opponent to recover from that. Yeah, especially because you can block with it for days. Yeah, oh, it's a zero seven. (laughs) It's huge. The thing is stupid. Huge. All right, and then finally, uh, Shugo's Hooked Sword, the 7 Fire Fire, 7 5 Relic Weapon. When you deal damage, play a 2 2 Oni Grunt. Um, I mostly put this in my list because I've heard people have won games with this card. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, I've won games with it. I don't know. I don't know what's. Uh, I don't know what the controversy is exactly, except. Uh... I hear that you haven't had a real good luck with it. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, no. yeah, but it is obviously a good card. It reads well. It <laughs> theoretically plays well. <laughs> but uh, I will yeah. say this: most of the time, I would rather have Edge of Prophecy in a deck that's planning to end the game with a relic weapon. But of course, Edge of Prophecy is a three faction card, whereas Shugo's Hook Sword is just two. It's just yeah, one, rather. Yeah, exactly. But Shugo's um, Hook Sword does provide a blocker immediately, so uh, it's hard for your opponent to attack back and kill it after you've killed something small with it. The other question I wanted to ask you is, where are you with the um, displays? Are there any displays that you would pick, pack one, pick one, over a rectifier? Probably not. I think I'm still less likely to uh, try to play four factions than a lot of people. I do end up playing three factions in in almost all of my decks, but I don't know which three factions it's going to be until I'm probably midway through pack two a lot of times. So the displays feel like very speculative picks to me. They're powerful, but they're not so powerful that I want to risk... Uh, just not being able to play the card at all. So Uh I guess that's how I feel about them most of the time. And I don't think there's a single one that that I'm so excited about that I would uh, just take it and then sort of try to push the draft towards those three factions. And I I still don't like to play four or five factions. I just haven't had any success doing that in this format. I've seen people play four factions successfully against me, but I don't know how they get there. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't work for me, so I just don't do it. Yeah, that's what I said about Shugo's Hook Sword. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. And then the other <laughs> related question are the three faction just uncommons. Are there any of those that you would? Oh, uh, let's see. There's the dragon um, over Rectifier. I wouldn't take the four or five dragon for six, I don't think. I definitely wouldn't take the progress one, the 6-4 that kills things that has curses on it because uh, there's not enough curses. Um, I would take Sorcerer's Wand over Rectifier for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's such a game-winning card that I'm happy to warp the my draft to play it. I would probably take Edge of Prophecy, the uh, the sword that doubles in the seven power sword that doubles in size in Fire Time Justice over Rectifier. Um, again, because I'm comfortable drafting that archetype, and I know I'm much more likely to win if I have one of those in my deck, and I'm playing those colors than if I don't. So I do tend to pick those up early, and. Also because Bladecrafter exists, so it's a lot easier to play your Edge of Prophecy reliably than it is any other bomb in your deck. Anyway, um, yeah, so Sorcerer's Wand, Edge of Prophecy. I wouldn't pick up the Gorger, the Sacrifice one, that early, but I've never played with Gorger. Uh, It always feels like too risky a pick for me. Um, And I haven't tried to play the Sacrifice deck that often, so I'm not sure when the card... It seems like the card is potentially very, very good. I've had it work against me, but I don't. I haven't seen it in the field all that often, anyway. So it's really hard for me to gauge when to pick that card and play it successfully. So I two, out of, two out of five on that. Sorcerer's Wand and Edge of Prophecy. I would pick over Rectifier. The others definitely not. Okay, cool. And then the final thing that I um, there are three other cards that I wanted to mention that we both had not on our list, but I think might be interesting to talk about. Um, and other people might have other cards. But uh, for me, it's Sky Worshipper, Bottled Storm, and Mithril Paladin. I wanted to bring up Sky Worshipper because Sky Worshipper feels very close to me, um, to Kindling Carver, and also tangentially uh, Inner Peace Ascendant. Where, like with Kindling Carver, like Sky Worshipper is a one-cost unit that can take over a game that can um that draws removal and so it feels like it has you know it can have a very powerful effect and it can be one of the best cards in your deck yeah that makes sense to me i'm not sure uh again it's a card where i haven't been able to make it work very well and i haven't seen it work often against me so i agree that the upside it uh i agree that the upside of it is is pretty high and i've definitely had situations where sky worshiper did make the difference after the board was stalled but it happens so rarely uh that i i I just haven't ended up valuing it that high um i don't know what else to say about it Uh and like my anecdotal experience with it is that it doesn't uh it doesn't work out that often it's good stats for a one drop like a zero four is fine um and I, I do play it when I end up in the Elysian Skies deck because it does seem like having that sort of inevitability of having a Sky Worshipper in play and then any flyer will win you the game over time. But um, I, I think that I, I think it only is great in that deck. And I guess that's not enough versatility for me to value it uh, real high. Like, like when we're talking about a card like Shardbinder, it's, it's got so much more versatility. Because mm-hmm. it's a it's a card that attacks for one thing, which Sky Worshipper can't do, and um, and and then uh, what it does requires no additional power. In fact, it saves you power, and it makes uh, and it has a really dramatic effect when it's working. Whereas Sky Worshipper is a massive power suck. It you have to spend a lot to make it work, and it's not a dramatic effect. It's a very slow effect. So I guess it yes. 
fit into yeah. uh, like the, it doesn't fit into very many decks and its effect is never dramatic. So I guess it's hard for me to be excited about it, even though clearly its potential is very, very, very high. Yeah, I guess I just think, I mean, part of the problem is like, unlike a card like the Teriax Colossal, the that old Elysian rare that could you could pay for to give itself plus one, plus one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this requires two cards, but there's just so many flyers in this sure. format. That and it does its job very well of blocking on the ground while helping in the air. You know, yeah. theoretically, it's great. I know. Yeah, that's why I just wanted to touch on it. I mean, I'm making the case for it. I didn't put it on my list, but it it always feels to me like it, sh- it should be on my list, even though I never actually pick it mm-hmm. that highly. Um, but so I just wanted to call that out. Then Bottled Storm. You know, I've taught, you know, this was a card of my week a couple weeks ago, and it's, I was actually mostly brought it up because I was kind of surprised you didn't have it on your list because yeah. I know you like it more than I do. I do like it. I don't like it enough to pick it over Rectifier. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's so the difference I, here. I just thought that was an uh, interesting card to point out for that fact because, you know, it again, it does have a very powerful effect. It's just slow and expensive. And I think, you know, just... N- Needs the right deck more so than Waystone Gate does. Yeah, it's a little narrower. Um, Waystone Gate partly is ridiculous because it fuels itself. I've probably said this exact thing before um, <laughs> on the podcast a few times, but that really is what pushes Waystone Gate to being absurd: is that it finds the sigils that you need in order to activate it. And Bottled Storm doesn't do that. It's pretty easy to play a Bottled Storm on three and then just not be able to activate it because you're busy trying to control the board. And then maybe it comes into play later. Uh, It's certainly a very, 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 very strong card. And it does have that effect on the board where your opponent doesn't want to play anything with one toughness because the Bottled Storm can kill it. All of that stuff is true. Um, but there's enough times when you play it and it doesn't really have that big of an effect on the game and then you lose tempo from playing it where it's sort of like, well, this is kind of a good support card, but I want to pick up the meat and potatoes of my deck before I start picking up support cards and Bottled Storm fills that role better than it does the sort of core. The last card is Mithril Paladin, which is the 6 Justice Justice 3-4 Exalted Mastery 5 play a 3-4 Relic Weapon. Um I think this is a. The, I wanted to bring this up because I think this is a card that a lot of people really like, and I've just found over the weeks that both of both you and I are a little less high on this, and I can never quite figure out why because it seems like, I mean, it's obviously six for three four isn't great, but there's just like so much value in its text that it seems like it it could be good, but I don't know. It just its floor is even its floor is not even that low because it it still has exalted. I don't know why I don't like this card. I guess, and I don't know why you don't particularly like this card. But uh, I think I can probably articulate it to some degree. It is expensive. Like you want your six drops to have a pretty big effect on the game. And the other thing is that there aren't very many combat tricks and weapons, so it needs to be able to attack. Twice in order to be able to get its mastery off, usually, mm-hmm. and that means you're—it's uh, just not having a huge effect on the game uh, at a time when you're already pretty far into the game. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, but I don't I don't mind playing it. Like it's a fine thing to to put in your deck, especially especially if you have siege provisions and then maybe one or two more ways to uh, give it plus two strength so that it can activate in one turn. And you know anything with exalted has a lot of potential. Uh, but things with Exalted have less potential in this format than they have in other formats because of the lack of weapons and combat tricks. Yeah, and because we're, like the card we're talking about, Rectifier. Exists. Yeah, yeah, and because of Rectifier. Uh, yeah, Rectifier is a terrific answer to anything with Exalted, obviously. Um, and uh, because people are main, uh, have sort of caught on in their main decking attachment removal, uh, Exalted isn't even quite as good as it used to be because people are, I mean, people will cast Ruin against it. Like, it's not quite as good as it used to be. I mean, you're probably perfectly happy to have Ruin cast on your Exalted weapon, um, because then you probably come out ahead in terms of value. But there's a lot of reasons why Exalted isn't quite as good as it was in the last format. So, um, Yeah, it's just, it's not that there's anything wrong with the card. It's, it's pretty good. It's just not, um, it's just not awesome, and for six power, you want something awesome. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think that was a good summation of that. Yeah. All right, so I think, uh, yeah, I think that was a pretty good overview of all the uncommons uh, that we would take over Rectifier. I thought we, I thought this would be a pretty interesting sort of practical overview because, you know, I've been, like I've been talking about, I've been having a little bit of trouble with this change for some reason. I don't know, maybe I'll stop once I draft again. <laughs> <laughs> when we when if we ever play our games, um, but I so I thought it'd be good to go back to the basics and just kind of get people really comfortable with the first few picks of their draft, so they feel like they're you know on a, a confident footing going forward. So I think we'll end our show there. Um, so as always, that is our show. Um, we'd like to thank our patrons for helping make this show a success, and for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can join us in our Discord. There's a link in the show notes, um, as well as thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts about the podcast. And don't forget to send in all your seven-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Goodbye.